to opportunity, education, and community. As an official Oregon eCycles drop site, Free Gig teaches volunteers how to refurbish used technology, including computers, tablets, TVs, smartphones, and more. These are then sold in Free Geek's electronic thrift shop to support hardware grants to thousands of nonprofits, schools, and community change organizations. Find out more at freegeek.org or 503 232 9350. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letzi. This is where we do sperm testing. That's right. We're going there. We're talking about making babies in a lab. She's screening for eggs, so she's looking for those eggs. The fertility industry counts on customers who are at their most vulnerable. Physically, every month, you're reminded that you were unable to conceive. So people turn to doctors for help that can cost tens of thousands of dollars. But do they know what they're getting into? There is a very high probability that the people involved will not end up with the baby they came to create. Today on Reveal, the baby-making business is booming. But who's looking out for would-be parents? First, this news.
from the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX. This is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. Making babies. Either it's not on your mind right now or it's all you think about. Melissa Pineda and her husband David have spent a lot of time thinking about it. All we wanted was to hear we were pregnant. The Pinedas live in Southern California, an epicenter of the baby-making business. It has one of the highest concentrations of fertility clinics anywhere. Melissa and David grew up near the port of Long Beach, where she's a union longshore worker, and these days, he's a stay-at-home parent. They got together years ago in a whirlwind romance. Well, we knew each other growing up as teenagers, but we never dated, and then we ran into each other uh, at work, and um, eight weeks later, we were married. They started as a couple raising children from other relationships. We have these kids and all of our time and attention, our whole lives are directed at them. But they hoped their family could grow. From the beginning, we really loved each other and felt like we've been blessed. And we were a good team. We were a really good team and we wanted more babies. But they needed help. So, like many would-be parents, they looked to fertility doctors to make their dreams come true. Even though David admits he felt conflicted and anxious about getting medical help. There's so much more to it than just, oh, we woke up one day and said, let's have a baby. Melissa had some experience with in vitro fertilization, known as IVF. When she was 34, she went to a clinic a friend had recommended, the Pacific Reproductive Center, run by Dr. Rafat Salem. He made it seem like um, having a baby was going to be an automatic. I would never have to think twice or worry because of my age and my health was good and everything would be fine. So Melissa signed up with Dr. Salem and started taking fertility drugs and hormones, sometimes by giving herself painful injections. It's thick, it's oil, and you have to push it through and you feel it going in, but you alternate your sides and it's all joyous because you know this is how you're going to have a baby. That first time, Melissa had a baby, just as Dr. Salem predicted she would. So four years later, she returned to his clinic as a satisfied customer, hoping for another child. I don't want to be the best longshoreman. I don't want to be the best friend. I want to be the best wife and the best mom. That's what I want to be. That's who I've always wanted to be. She felt ready for the routine. Hormone drugs, eggs removed, fertilization. Embryos transferred from a Petri dish into her womb. When Melissa got home from the clinic, she curled up on the couch, surrounded with comfort food. Beans, bean and cheese burritos, macaroni and cheese, eggs, everything delicious and good, and that makes me happy and feel good. And we were all excited to have a baby, you know, all the family. She was nesting there, willing the embryos to take hold, when her cell phone rang two days later, mid-morning on a Sunday. Melissa recognized the number right away. It was Dr. Salem. I answer it, and he says, Melissa, Melissa. And I said, Dr. Salem? And he said, yes, I need you to come into the office. And I said, I can't. My husband's not home. I'm on bed rest. And he said, well, call your husband and have him bring you in. This is my cell phone number. Call me when you get here. Melissa called David. They drove together to the clinic. The parking lot, with room for 50 cars, was almost empty. When they went inside, Melissa says Dr. Salem wanted to examine her. A nurse named Kate took her to a patient room, where Melissa lay on an exam bed. Melissa describes what happened next. The details aren't easy to hear. He comes in, 
And he sits down on a rolly chair and I could see his bald head between my legs and I felt um, a speculum go in there like a pap smear, you know, and, and then all of a sudden it hurts really bad and I hold on and I can feel myself tightening and holding on and Kate's holding my shoulder and she's like, don't move, don't move, you're, you're doing good, you're doing good. But Melissa didn't feel like things were going well at all. It's hurting it's burning. It felt like he was, you know, like when you scrape a pumpkin, when you clean out the inside of a pumpkin and you just keep scraping the inside and then you can feel like the, the outside of the thing, you feel it um, getting weaker. And my pelvis was rising and I can feel him scraping me. It hurt. And all I could say was the ABCs and the Hail Mary over and over and over again over and over and over again. And then he stood up and he walked out. The nurse kept comforting Melissa. And I started crying and I looked at her and I said, did he just give me an abortion? And she said, you're so strong, you're so strong. And then she unstrapped me from the table and I was on the gurney and I was crying and everything changed because I knew something bad happened. Melissa didn't know exactly what happened, but she knew that what Dr. Salem had done ensured she wouldn't be pregnant. How did things go so wrong? Reveals Bernice Young and reporter Jonathan Jones looked into this case as a part of a larger investigation into America's $3 billion in vitro fertilization industry. IVF clinics promise would-be parents a lot and deliver 65,000 babies a year. But IVF fails way more often than it succeeds. Do prospective parents even realize that? Bernice and Jonathan dig into this growing business that sells hope to people at one of the most vulnerable times in their lives. They begin by trying to understand the doctor that Melissa visited, Rafat Salem. Yeah, hi, my name is Jonathan Jones. I'm calling from Reveal. I'm trying to get in touch with Dr. Salem. We didn't reach him that time, but we kept trying. In the meantime, we learned about Dr. Salem in other ways. I think this is the one, room 112, which is uh, the records office. So let's go in here. Jonathan and I went to the county courthouse in downtown Los Angeles. So let's put in Salem first, uh, Salem's name, and see what comes up uh, in the computer for cases. Okay, wow. here we It's quite a number of cases there. We found that 10 patients had filed medical malpractice cases against Dr. Salem or his clinic, the Pacific Reproductive Center. He won one, lost one, and settled three. We also looked at how his clinic stacked up against others. Every year, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention collects and publishes success rates. We learned that Dr. Salem's numbers are really high. He plays this up in advertising, on his clinic website, and in this promotional video. I think we produce a good result here. If you look at our statistics compared to the rest of the clinic, I think our statistics stand tall. They stand way out. Dr. Salem has helped a lot of women have babies. His success rates are, in some cases, double the national average. But he emphasizes one CDC calculation over others. Most fertility doctors do the same. 
It's based on when a clinic harvests an egg from a patient, fertilizes it, and then transfers a fresh embryo, usually three to five days later, and the woman ends up delivering a baby. If you're a woman looking for a fertility clinic, Dr. Salem's statistics sound pretty good. But are they the best way to choose where to go for treatment? It turns out these success rates are pretty much the most complicated thing ever. We wanted to get a handle on them, so I talked to Dr. Vitaly Kushner, a fertility doctor based in New York. A few years back, Dr. Kushner and his colleagues looked into success rates. He says fertility clinics can game the system. The problem is the methodology that's used to calculate those success rates um, in that they allow certain things to be excluded from, uh, from statistical consideration. Clinics can hide data depending on the way they classify a procedure or patient. Clinics can also inflate their numbers by only treating the patients most likely to succeed at IVF. We found that centers will often compete with each other based on their success rates. So it's advantageous to a clinic to report uh, higher success rates than, than another neighboring clinic. And I think that over many years, that has transcended not just into selecting the type of patients that certain clinics take, but also into the type of treatments that the clinic chooses to provide. You also have to look at how clinics market themselves. We found lots of pledges of individual attention, promises of dreams fulfilled, even football analogies, from a Florida doctor who pledged to coach parents into the end zone. Team Brown never gives up, baby, because we know if we keep trying, we will reach our goal. And we noticed some clinics advertise their success at getting women pregnant, not delivering healthy babies. I visited one. The San Diego Fertility Center is right near the highway, just a couple of miles from the Pacific Ocean. It's sleek and modern, with a two-story glass atrium and airy conference rooms that give it an upscale ambiance. Marketing director Joanne Leviton shows us around. These are all our babies. (laughs) The babies Joanne's pointing to are photos, hundreds of them. Eight tall framed collages line this wall. One baby grins from a bathtub wearing a wet, spiky hairdo. Another one sleeps in the lap of an enormous stuffed bear. Around um, the holidays, um, we get the Christmas cards and lots, hundreds from former patients and, you know, updates on their children, and they just love it. The doctors go crazy over it. Like most IVF centers, this clinic offers patients the option to use donor eggs. Healthy eggs, usually produced by young women whose ovaries are in peak condition. One of the clinic's brochures boasts a 70 to 90% success rate with donor eggs. But they're advertising pregnancies, not births. The brochure does not say that some of those pregnancies will end in miscarriages. So there's a journey (laughs) to get to a baby, as you know. Lisa Vandella is this clinic's CEO. A lot of um, spontaneous miscarriages happen in this later phase because there's a genetic abnormality with the embryo. She's the clinic's chief number cruncher. She fully understands that success rates can confuse potential customers. Because how did you gather your success rates? Did you count everybody that started on medication? Did you count everybody that had an egg retrieval? And did you get to try the treatment 
or did I tell you you couldn't try the treatment because I didn't want you in my success rates? There's a lot of different ways to make success rates look good or bad. This is far from what Congress intended when lawmakers weighed in 25 years ago. It was 1992, 14 years after the first test tube baby was born in England. The profession at that time was pretty much the Wild West. As far as standards or data or disclosure, there was just no there there. Oregon Senator Ron Wyden was in the House of Representatives at that time. He sponsored a bill requiring fertility clinics to tell the CDC how many times they did IVF and how many patients had babies after the treatment. Well, people tell me that it gives them the ability to shop and get a better deal for themselves. I mean, you can have people spending thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000, sometimes more, for these services. And before this law, people really had nowhere to turn. But we found the opposite of what Wyden claims. Success rates can provide a veneer of legitimacy to troubled clinics and leave room for clinic operators to promise too much. Bernice met a woman who spent 11 years and more than $50,000 on fertility treatments that didn't work. Her name's Pamela Mahoney Sigdinis. She's a tall, thoughtful woman who lives in Silicon Valley. She comes across as compassionate and driven. She and her husband stopped fertility treatments when she was 40. At that point, she was physically, financially, and emotionally drained. You really don't think of yourself as full, as a, as a full um, woman. You sort of feel a bit like an alien. You, you feel very isolated. Pamela, now in her 50s, felt the fertility industry had led her on and led her astray. We're sort of socialized with this understanding that if you want children, you can have them. The World Health Organization defines infertility as the inability to conceive after one year of trying the good old-fashioned way. WHO calls that a disease. Fertility clinics promote their services as a cure. Pamela has become a writer and activist who believes clinic operators should tell patients a lot more than they do now. What's not published are failure rates. Nationwide, the failure rates are huge. Two out of every three IVF cycles don't result in a live birth. Two out of three. And failure rates are important because people need to come into the experience understanding there is a very high probability that the people involved will not end up with the baby they came to create. The CDC and the fertility industry group known as SART are moving toward publishing more nuanced information so patients may have a better idea if IVF can help them have a baby given their specific circumstances. But publish failure rates? Not likely, says Dimitri Kissin, head of the CDC's fertility section. The failure rates can be calculated, but for consumers, I think, uh, you know, when they start the new treatment, I think they want to focus on the goal, of, on, the, on the success of the treatment. So my personal opinion is that success rates will be more helpful. Others believe success rates don't help consumers at all. They present the success rate in a way that, unless you're incredibly sophisticated, you can't really understand what it means. Jim Hawkins teaches consumer law at the University of Houston and has studied the fertility industry. He says people should think about fertility doctors like they do used car dealers. 
when they kick the tires and say, this is not a very good car, you kind of assume they're just talking you down so that you'll expect less. And when they give you the huge number up front, you assume that they're trying to get as much money as they can. But with a doctor, you don't assume that they're trying to make money. So it's a different consumer area because people aren't suspicious at all. Even though fertility treatments are a big financial commitment, it costs $15,000 or more for one round of IVF. In the U.S., only 15 states require health care plans to pay for infertility care. And that coverage is often very limited. Some clinics offer package deals in which patients pay for two or more IVF cycles in advance. Jim takes issue with the way clinics promote these deals. He's even spotted a billboard right outside his apartment that put a picture of a healthy, smiling baby right next to the words, fall in love with our IVF specials. It makes me wish that they would focus their advertising on other things instead of playing on people's emotions. But emotions run deep in this business. For many patients, success rates offer a tangible sign of hope. And clinics like Dr. Salem's latch onto that hope in their advertising. This is the music for a video showing happy, healthy children, many cuddled in Dr. Salem's arms. Hope, choice, happiness, and payment plans to make them happen. We've seen how the fertility industry plays on those emotions, selling hope at a high price, using rates of success that aren't the best way for patients to decide how and where to get treatment. Bernice and Jonathan found out something else about the way clinics promote themselves. Doctors can boost their success rates by transferring more than one embryo at a time. So, will I do two embryos? Yes. Did I transfer two embryos this morning? Yes. That could mean twins, triplets, or more, which puts moms and babies at risk. Do those patients know they're at risk of having twins? Yes. Do many of them want twins despite that risk? Yes. We'll tell you why when we come back. You're listening to Reveal.
From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. Although science produced the first viable test tube baby almost 40 years ago, in vitro fertilization is still confusing territory for the growing number of people who consider it, and even to some who've already done it. At the start of this hour, we introduced you to Melissa Pineda. She attempted to have a child through IVF with the help of Dr. Rafat Salem. Months later, she couldn't shake the experience from her mind. I didn't know the truth yet. It was still all in my mind. and I couldn't figure out at that time whether I was going crazy. I just didn't know what was the truth or not. Reveals Bernice Young and reporter Jonathan Jones kept trying to talk with Dr. Salem. Hi, Rosie. It's Jonathan Jones calling from Reveal. Just, uh, is Dr. Salem in? One thing they wanted to ask, why had Dr. Salem put three embryos into Melissa? Transferring more than one at a time is a common practice, even though, as Bernice and Jonathan discovered, that can lead to all kinds of health risks for moms and kids. Fertility doctors know this, yet most continue to do it. While waiting for Dr. Salem to get back to them, Bernice and Jonathan visited two other Southern California fertility clinics to learn why doctors risk transferring more than one embryo in a woman at a time. I went to Reproductive Partners Fertility Center, San Diego. Lisa Yo manages the lab here. Okay, so this is our embryology lab. She opens a heavy door and leads me inside. This is where the miracle, if we call it that, <laughs> happens. So, to prevent uh, contamination of the embryos, I've put on a face mask, a hat, a blue paper gown, and booties over my street clothes and shoes. Inside the sterile zone, machines from refrigerator to shoebox size whir and beep. Can you tell us there's this interesting machine back here that's making all this interesting sound? What it, What is it? Oh, it's a, it's a machine that um, tests the hormones. Um, so we do run uh, progesterone. Lisa has been an embryologist for almost 30 years. She's seen major advances in reproductive technology. For example, she can now pick the most viable sperm and inject one directly into a tiny egg. The technology for freezing embryos so that patients can use them in the future is faster and more reliable than what they used in the past. My name is Gabriel Garzo. Dr. Garzo is the medical director here. He says those technological improvements mean doctors can reduce how often they transfer multiple embryos at once. That solves what he sees as an IVF-related problem. Too many twins. There is a really ignorance or unawareness about the complications of twin pregnancies. The notion of twins seems pretty innocuous, but Dr. Garzo knows the real risks they pose. While the vast majority of twins will turn out fine, they are more likely than single babies to have birth defects or to die before delivery. Often, twins are not fully developed when they're born. Since most twin pregnancies are born, at about a month uh, prior to, you know, the usual length of pregnancy, which is 40 weeks, there are significant developmental problems because the 